Amen. You can pop a squat. Hey, it's good to be back with everybody. It's been a couple weeks. It's actually been a lot of weeks, about three. So uh, if I haven't met you or you don't recognize me because I chopped off all my hair, my name's Travis. I'm the college and career pastor here at Baylife Church, and I am very glad to have you. If I haven't met you, uh, the hope is that sometime after our time together in service, we could meet each other and be best buds. So it is a new year, as I'm sure many of you know, and I kind of made a covenant with myself that for as long as I'm in any kind of a pastorate, that I would never walk up into the pulpit and preach the new year, new you sermon. And there's a couple reasons why. The first and the least biblical of which is that it's corny. (laughs) A maybe better reason, but still not a great one, is that the Bible says a lot about making rash oaths. And it seems like New Year's resolutions are more rash oaths than actual promises. And I will evidence myself in that and that I've had checkers three times so far this year. And I promised I wouldn't have it at all. So there you go. Um, So... Our time together is not going to be that, but I would be lying to you if I said that each year that I step up here as the pastor of this ministry, I don't have a few things that I feel like God has kind of laid on me as the course which we might need to chart through the new year. There's always things that that I step into the other side of the previous year with that weigh heavy on me as things that we, uh, by God's grace, need to be committed to and and to be conformed to. And so I'm going to lay my cards on the table and just kind of tell you that there's really only one thing right now that is my, my deep desire that our ministry would be about this year. And it's essentially this. My hope is that as a ministry, we would experience a deepening of our Christian lives together. Uh, now, now, I need to unpack that because that sounds very churchy and cliche. And, and let me first say, it's not that I haven't wanted that in the past. It's not to say that, that last year I thought, man, I want to make some shallow Christians. And this year I changed my mind. There's always been this hope and this kind of back-burning desire that if, if you're a part of this group and this body of believers, that you would be growing in your love of Jesus, that you'd be growing in your prayer life and your knowledge of Scripture, that you'd be growing in holiness. It's always been there. Uh, but it's just something that for me is weighing profoundly heavily on on my, my burden for this ministry in the coming year. And there, there's a specific reason for it. And the reason is this, because I've been looking at the culture around us and the direction in which it is going and the spirit of this age, if you will, and I'm not the only person doing it. There's plenty of cultural commentators and, and Christian thinkers who've been doing the same thing. And if you haven't noticed, American Western culture is hurtling towards something called secularization. And... That might sound like a churchy word, like, is he secular? No, he's born again. Uh, but, but really, this word secularization doesn't quite mean what you, you think it does. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the culture is becoming an atheist, because that's just not what the numbers bear out. The fact is that less than 5% of America's population are atheists, less than 2% of the world's population are atheists, and less than 1% in the history of humanity have ever been atheists. So it's not that people are becoming atheists. It's that people are falling into this category uh, that, that I, is kind of defined as the nuns, as the people who are spiritual, but they're not religious. A perfect picture of that happened when I chopped all my hair off last week. Um, I was in Jupiter, Florida, uh, which is it, it's another world. It's really weird. And, 
and I decided I hate my hair being long and being blown in my face. I'm going to a barber shop. I don't care how much it costs or where it is. So I went to the only one open on New Year's Day, and it cost a ton of money because it was the only one open on New Year's Day. But as the guy's cutting my hair, he says, well, you know, I'm a barber, as you can tell, but what do you do for a living? And that's always a cringy question to me. And it's cringy not because I'm ashamed of what I do, uh, but because everyone treats me differently once they find out what I do. And so, so he asked me, and I kind of was like, um, what should I say? I'm just going to tell him. I said, I'm a pastor in Tampa. And he immediately kind of like got really jittery, and he was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry I swore in front of you. I mean, like, I, I really didn't mean, I'm sorry if I offended you. And I was like, dude, did I flinch when you dropped the F-bomb? I'm, I'm a big boy. I can take it. Like, I watch rated R movies. I'm cool. We're, we're okay. And... And then he, kind of, he almost starts, like, justifying his life story, which I'm not even aware of. Like, it's like he thinks that I can see into his soul, and I know everything he's done. And so he's like, you know, I, I, you know, I used to go to church, and, you know, I'm like a born-again Christian, but, I, you know, I'm not, organized religion isn't really my thing anymore. You know, I, I go camping, and that's my church. <laughs> it's like, I go camping too, but I still go to church. <laughs> uh, but in reality, nicest guy in the whole world. I think he did an okay job with the haircut, but... But he embodies this trend in culture. It is this spiritual but not religious. And what you find is people taking bits and pieces of whatever religions they run into that they find interesting and hacking them together until there's some sort of like a religious megazord where, you know, I, I like Jesus and a God of love, but judgment, not so much. And I really like meditation and Eastern mysticism and Jesus is kind of mystical, and I really like Oprah Winfrey, too, and they just kind of smash it all together. And so what's happening is people are kind of sifting away from what I would consider to be orthodox, historic, biblical Christianity, the faith that Jude says was once and for all delivered to the saints. And people are treating the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith like a buffet where you can take bits and pieces rather than a solid and complete body of revealed truth. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's not cool to be a Christian anymore. If it ever was, it's definitely not now. And beyond that, it's not even expected culturally that you should be a Christian. There was a time in the South where even if you weren't a Christian, you went to church because that's what good people did. It's not that way anymore. And the reality is that in this environment, which our culture is hurtling towards, half-hearted, anemic, one Sunday a month, leave the church when someone makes me mad, Christianity will die. It will not survive. And it should not survive because it is not biblical Christianity. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, about 100 years ago, wrote this, and it's profoundly true today. He says that there is a common, worldly type of Christianity in this day, which many have, and they think they have enough. A cheap Christianity, it offends nobody, it requires no sacrifice, it costs nothing, it is worth nothing. And I just want to tell you that as the pastor of this ministry, it is over my dead body that these are the kind of Christians we will produce. And if you come out of this ministry as this kind of a Christian, it will not be because we failed to hold out historic, orthodox, biblical Christian truth. It will be because you saw it and chose to reject it. Because this half-hearted, anemic, shallow, topsoil Christianity will not survive. 
And so my hope is that this year, over the course of this year, there would be a deepening, that your roots would move from topsoil to the bedrock of Scripture and the gospel, and that we would grow more deeply into it together. And the first step towards that, I think, is the next few weeks. We're going to spend the next five to seven weeks talking specifically about the church and what the church is and what the marks of a real church are and what role the church should have in the life of a Christian and why the church is important. And I recognize that there's a lot of us who have probably grown up in church and some of us who maybe haven't, but I think regardless, we all hear five to seven weeks talking about the church, depending on if I get long-winded or not. And we say, that seems like an awful lot of time to explain something very basic. And so what I want to do, at least in the beginning of our time, is kind of offer a reasoning for why I think it's necessary that we spend this amount of time talking about this and how it's going to deepen us as a ministry together as the people of God. And so my first kind of philosophical, very high up in the air reason for why we need to talk about this and why we need to spend a lot of time talking about it is very simply this, that we don't understand the church it's, it's, a, it's a simple reason, but the reality is that culturally, statistically, philosophically, our generation of Christians does not get it. Many of us view the church as the, uh, the, the product of some old dead white guys and a bump in the road on Jesus actually accomplishing his mission. And so this idea is embodied in many ways by this idea that I've got my podcast and my Hillsong City and my my NIV Bible, and I can hang out at home. I don't need to go to church because it's corrupt. Or this idea that, you know what, I'm not really a big fan of going to church. I'd rather be the church with me and my bro at Starbucks. And so I don't, I don't go to church. I am the church. And so I hang out on my own and be the church by myself. But I just want, I just want you to recognize this. That understanding of the church is utterly foreign to like the last 2,000 years of Christian history. If you had said that to anybody pre-75 years ago, they would have said, what are you talking about? That's insanity. That you would think that you don't need to be a part of the body of Christ and you can do it by yourself. That understanding of church is not biblical. It's not sound. It is culturally informed and it is culturally shaped and it's based on the radical individualism of the American lifestyle, this idea that you can have it your way, Burger King Christianity. And I like Burger King, not as much as Checkers. Um, perhaps no greater picture of the way that we've misunderstood the church uh, can be found than the way that so often we interpret Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, a lot of you have probably heard it. It won't be on the screen because I, I decided to talk about it 10 minutes ago. Um, so it's not in the the slides. Uh, but, but we interpret Ephesians 2.10 in, in a way that I'm sure some of you have heard before. And let me put it in context for you. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, many of us have heard that preached. And this has been the idea. You're God's workmanship. 
You personally are God's workmanship, and God doesn't make mistakes, so you should think more highly of yourself, not in some sort of an arrogant way, but you should have better self-esteem, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't look at yourself and think that you're ugly or that you're unattractive, and you should have more, more of a positive self-image. And while I don't want to detract from that, because the reality is that the Bible teaches that. You can look in the Psalms. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is in Scripture. That you are in the image of God. You are exactly as God meant for you to be. That's not what Ephesians 2.10 teaches. In fact, if you read Ephesians 1 through 2, Paul is talking about the church. He's, he, it's this overflow of praise about what God has done in Christ in taking a people out of the world and delivering them into the church, into the kingdom of God. So when he says, we are God's workmanship, he's talking about the church. He's not just talking about us individually. He's talking about the people of God as a whole. The church is not a human idea. It is the work of God. And because of that, because it is God's workmanship, we need to take it seriously, and we need to understand what it is and why God has chosen to work in this way. So, there's a couple words that are going to get thrown around a lot for the next few weeks, and so I want to define them for you now so you've got them and so it doesn't cause kind of a, a break in our conversation together. So there's going to be three phrases or words that I kind of want to define for you going forward because when we talk about the church, we're really addressing two different realities. So the first reality is the church Catholic or the universal church. Um, and the definition of the universal church or the church Catholic is the people of God from all times, places, and tribes. Now, the word Catholic might throw some of you Reformed Protestants off. Uh, and you might go, mm-mm, freedom from Rome, right? Um, when we talk about the church Catholic, we're not talking about what our boy Franny is doing over in Rome right now. It's Pope Francis. We're boys. Um, <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. The word Catholic means universal. And what you see in Scripture, especially in Hebrews, the cloud of witnesses section towards the end of Hebrews, what we see is a picture of believers from history spanning the scope of redemption gathered together in one place. So there's a sense in which we can talk about the church that's not time-bound. Uh, the church is all the people of God throughout history and, and throughout all of the world. So that is the universal or the Catholic church. Uh, but there's another sense in which we can talk about the church, and it is the local church, and I would define it like this. It's the time-bound, regional expression of the universal church. I'll say that again, the time-bound, regional expression of the universal church. Because the reality is that this big, grand, eternal church manifests itself in places, among people, in nations, and in time, and in space. But here's the reality, and this is what I kind of want to spend the next few weeks talking about, is that we all recognize that just because somebody or some group calls themselves a church doesn't actually make them a church. I don't think we would have any problem agreeing universally that the church of Satan is not a Christian church, even though church is in the name. In the same way, I don't think we'd have any problem saying, you know what, it, it, when you really look at Mormonism, it's not, it's not the Christian church. It could call itself a church, but we wouldn't say it's part of this universal, grand uh, Catholic church, if you will. And so the question becomes, maybe we know in our hearts, that's, that's probably not actually part of the, the church, but why? 
And many of us can identify it, but we can't say why. And here's what I want to talk about is that there are marks scripturally of what the church looks like, what the people of God look like, what they should be about, what they should be committed to, what they should be defined by. And if we can recognize those marks, then we can commit ourselves to it uh, personally and as a ministry. We can submit ourselves to these things and say, this is, these are the marks of a true church. We want to be about this. We want to be devoted to this. And here's maybe a more practical reason behind all of this, is that I recognize that as of right now, some of you are members of Bay Life, some of you are members of other church, churches throughout the area. But the likelihood of everybody in this room staying in this area is very small. The reality is that many of you will get married and you will move away, and the burden will fall on you to find a church. And if you don't know what the marks of the true church are, that is a dangerous place to be. So we spend the next five to seven weeks talking about the people of God, what the church looks like. The first question we might ask is, how does God create his people? How does God create a people, and, and in so doing, how does he create the church? And a better question behind that is, how does God create anything? It's, it's interesting that you don't have to go very far into the textbook to find the answer. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2, it begins to unpack how he did this. And verse 2 says this, and God said, let there be light. And then the next verse, and God said. And God said, and God said. How does God create? According to scripture, God creates things through his word. He creates things by speaking. That is the power of the word of God that it creates out of nothing. It's interesting, when, when Israel kind of comes up against its neighbors and, and the pagans in the ancient Near East, one of the big things that they argue again and again and again about the gods of the rest of the world is that they don't speak. That, that Yahweh alone, that, that the triune God alone is a God who speaks. You find this in Habakkuk where he's talking about somebody making an idol, and he's just talking about how ridiculous it is that you would take this log from your backyard, carve it into the shape of a dog, and say, this is a god. I mean, you, you know that it's not. You just made it. And he says, beyond the fact that it's absurd that you're making a god, it doesn't speak. And God speaks. And when God speaks, things happen. It's interesting that you go a little bit further into Genesis. Many of you have probably heard about Father Abraham with many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. You've likely heard this. But what Abraham is, is the beginning of God's people. Abraham is, is the first, the patriarch, the head of God's people in Israel. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Now the Lord said... To Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How does God create his people? He speaks. 
the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. And Abraham is called out of the land that he's in, out of his family group, out of his ethnicity, out of his tribe. He's called out of all of these things, and he becomes the first of the people of God because the word of God creates the people of God. There's a lot of ways you can create a people group. There's a lot of ways that you can create a collective or a community. If you don't believe me on that, you can look at any kind of club list at any college, right? Because there's clubs for action regarding climate change or poverty. And so there are clubs that are based around particular social ills and a shared concern for social problems. And then there's clubs that are based on hobbies. There's like the Magic the Gathering Club or the Dungeons and Dragons Club or the clubs that actual cool people other than myself joined, like... I don't know, the rocketry club or the scuba diving club or the soccer club, right? And, and on and on and on it goes. I'm not a very clubby person, if you can't tell. I'm just picking random things out of there. But the reality is that those groups of people are formed around shared common interests, shared forms of entertainment. But then you can form a group of people around an ethnicity. And in fact, most people tend to be drawn to people who are like them. If you don't believe me, stand on the second floor of any high school lunchroom and look down and see how everybody and every cluster looks just like one another. And so those groups form around these things. They form around uh, shared ethnic background. They form around shared interests. They form around shared social concerns. But the people of God are not formed around any of those things. They're not formed by a shared background. They're not formed by a shared income. They're not formed by a shared political party. They're not formed uh, by a shared interest in what kind of music they care for. The people of God are formed by the word of God. This happens again in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel find themselves among the nation of Egypt. And how does God call his people out and create in them, uh, create, build them into a people group. The word of the Lord comes to Moses. And he calls his people out. Listen, there is a reason why Beth and why Jordan and why myself or Nick or any other number of people stand up here at the beginning of every single service. And rather than showing a cool countdown video or having some kicking rock band intro or doing any other number of things. There's a reason why they stand up here and they read God's word for you because it is the word of God that creates his people. The people of God come together under the word of God because that is how God has always created by his word. The most profound mark of the church is that it's a people of the word. The most countercultural thing that we can say is that God speaks and that he's spoken and that we submit ourselves to it. So no, you and your boy hanging out at Starbucks and talking about deep stuff, not a church unless there's a Bible between the two of you and you're listening to what it has to say. The word of God creates his people. But in addition to creating, there's more. The word of God does more in the church than simply define the church. Although I would say once the word is gone, once a church is no longer about the scriptures, it's not a church anymore. But it does more. You can go on into Ezekiel chapter 37. Many of us are familiar with this passage of scripture. It's 37, 1 through 11. It's lengthy. 
Uh, but, but I think it's important that we hear the whole of it. Ezekiel has a vision. He says, the hand of the Lord was upon him. And the Lord brought him out in spirit, in the spirit of the Lord, and set him down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. Now, many of you are probably familiar with this passage. It gets thrown around a lot. There's something we miss, though, in these first three verses because it's actually profoundly morbid when you think about it. Ezekiel has this vision, and God brings him out to a valley full of bones, right? But God is not content for Ezekiel to simply stand there and look and go, yep, they're pretty dead. They're definitely dead. Uh, That's not what God does. Instead, he takes Ezekiel from the ledge down into the valley, and he says, I want you to walk, among these bones. I want you to feel them snap beneath your feet. I want you to know that there is absolutely no life in them. Uh, to borrow a phrase from my dad, they're not juicy either, right? In case you didn't know, my dad works for the Department of Funeral Home Services, so this is totally like right up his alley. They're not juicy bones, right? They're not freshly deceased. There's not the hope that things might get better. It's not people bleeding out. They are dry. They have been dead. They are totally dead. There is no hope of life being restored to them by any human means. You're not going to CPR these things. There's not even a heart left to resuscitate. So God walks Ezekiel back and forth across the bones. And then he asks him a question. He says, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers, oh, Lord God, you know. Then God says to him, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. You shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel does what he's told. He says, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So God speaks again. He says, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then God interprets the vision for Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Now, this might sound strange to you. It might even sound a little bit morbid to you. But the reality is that what was true of Israel, that they were totally dead, that there was no spark of life left in them as a nation, that their hope was cut off is just as true for you and I. There's a false understanding, an unbiblical understanding that many of us swallow unintentionally. It is this idea that the church is filled with good people who need to be better. But that is not the biblical standard. The church is full of dead people who need to be made alive. Just like the valley of bones for Ezekiel. And how does life come to the bones in Ezekiel's vision? He opens his mouth and he proclaims the word of the Lord because the word of the Lord brings life. If what scripture says is true, 
that you and I are dead in our trespasses wholly and entirely. The only way that we will be made alive, just like these bones in Ezekiel's vision, is if we as the church sit under the proclamation of the word of God, which brings life. If we are as dead as scripture says, and we need not to be made better, but to be made alive, listen, funny videos don't do that. Pizza parties don't do that. The word of God does that. And so when the church gathers, we gather under the word because it brings life. If there has ever been a moment where you've sat under my preaching or Mark's preaching or the preaching in our student ministry or any other ministry and it has imparted life to you, I want you to understand it's not because I'm rhetorically gifted. It's not, it's not because Mark has great illustrations the authority of preaching is dependent on what is being preached. If there is any life in what I say, it is coming from the word of God, not from me. Because the word of the Lord creates his people and it gives life to his people. The last point maybe we can make tonight comes from the lips of Jesus, the lips of Jesus in his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17 Verse 17, we'll start in 16. Uh, Jesus prays this to the Father. Uh, they, referring to the church, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So the word of God creates the people of God. The word of God gives life to his people. And the word of God sanctifies his people. There's a woman who I've been really interested in who just has this incredible testimony named Rosaria Butterfield. She's the wife of a Presbyterian minister now, but spent probably 30 to 35 years of her life as just not a Christian and very far from, from Christianity and almost all of her life choices. And she was a professor at, I believe it was Rutgers University, and there was a point at which uh, this men's conference, evangelical men's conference, came through. And... She did not and was not a fan of Christianity, and so she wrote this op-ed piece in the newspaper uh, for the local newspaper, just kind of ripping this conference a new one. And she got all this hate mail from Christians who were like, oh, you're going to hell, you suck. You know, maybe not in those words because it was written. But, but she got all this angry, spiteful mail from Christians, and, and she kind of kept a file of just further evidence of why Christians were awful. But one letter that she got in response to her op-ed piece was written by a Presbyterian minister named Ken. And he said, listen, I don't agree with anything you said, but I am wondering if you would come over uh, for dinner with me and my wife. And, and if I could just explain to you what it is that we really believe. And so she had decided she was going to write a book on Christianity and why it was dangerous and backwards and repressive and, and all these things. And so she said, this is, this is research. I get, to, I get to watch them in their natural habitat. And so, so she agrees to go to dinner and Ken sits down at the table with his wife and his kids, and he says, can we pray? She's like, yeah, I mean, you can do whatever you want. And so, so he bows his head, and he begins to repent of his sins in front of her. Father, forgive me that I haven't loved my wife as I should. Father, forgive me that I haven't taken care of my children as I ought to have. Father, forgive me that I haven't been the kind of pastor I should have been. Thank you for blessing us with this food and this company with Rosaria, even though we don't deserve it. And that struck her. 
as being different from her experiences. And so she decided, if I'm going to write a book on what's wrong with Christians, I should probably read the book that they believe is the word of God written. And so over the course of three to four years, she continues to meet with Ken, and she reads the Bible front to back 30 times, something to that effect. Puts us all to shame, and we hang our heads at our failed New Year's resolution. (laughs) And, And there comes a point in her life, towards the end of her reading of the Bible, where she's at a party with her friends, none of whom are believers, all of whom are hostile to Christianity. And her friend takes her aside into the kitchen and says, I need to talk to you. I'm, I'm worried about you. And she says, well, that's touching why. And she says, you reading this Bible is changing you. You're different now than when you started doing this. And I'm worried because you're starting to sound like a Christian. <laughs> But should this be surprising if what Jesus says is true, that the word of God sanctifies, and if you don't know what that word means, it means to make more holy, to make more like God, that the longer we sit under the word of God taught and proclaimed and read aloud, the more we become like the one who's spoken. The word of God creates his people. The word of God gives life to his people, and the word of God makes his people more like himself. It sanctifies us in truth, and the longer that we sit under it read and preached and sung and discussed, the more we become like the God who speaks. If there is any defining mark of the church, it is that we are a people of the word. And if we are not that, we are not a church. Martin Luther, towards the end of his life, uh, was asked by a friend, how he had accomplished these insane reforms and turned the world on its head uh, as he had about 500 years ago. And he responded in this way. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all. The word of God brings life. If we are anything, if the church is anything, We are a people of the word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you speak. We thank you that you've spoken. We thank you that you've spoken in your word and that you've spoken through the word made flesh in your son. God, I pray that when we gather, we would be a people of the word. God, that that would mark this ministry, that that would mark this church. Lord, I pray as we continue in our time together, as we come to the table, as we continue to sing of what you've done, God, I pray that the word of Christ would dwell richly in us as you command it to be in Colossians. God, that as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as we sing your words back to you, as we celebrate their truth and their power to give life and to create and to convict. God, I pray that you make us a more deeply biblical people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.